All right. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99% where the real gains are made. We've got Marilyn with us. Hey guys, what's up? And we also have special guest, Brian Stover. Hey, thanks for having me on guys. How are you guys doing? Great. Great. I'm, uh, I guess I'm starting to taper for Ironman Tulsa, which is pretty exciting to be, uh, in the taper phase, but can you tell the 10 listeners a little bit about yourself? <laughs> um, you are with us in glorious Tucson. What else do they know about you? Uh, let's see. I think, uh, I started to get my coaching feet wet probably last century in right around early 92, 93, when the swim club I was working, I mean, I was swimming with one of the, one of the coaches quit suddenly. And I was the only senior who wasn't going to college to swim on scholarship. So they were like, since you can't swim very well, you can help coach. (laughs) (laughs) So I coached, uh, for two or three months with them and then finished my study at university and then came back and ended up coaching for them for a bit. Um, and then moved back to school to do a semester in grad school. And I started coaching a couple of triathletes, just random people that I knew who were like, Hey, you have an exercise science degree. Maybe you can help me out with my training. So tried that, had no idea what I was doing. And then Probably 96, I actually had uh, a couple people here in Tucson ask me to coach them. And then uh, uh, I was working at one of the hospitals here in town doing outpatient and inpatient cardiac rehab, and they were downsizing. So I decided I needed to make a little bit more income since my hours were going from 40 down to six per week. So the legacy company of Accelerate 3 was started by a good friend of mine who went back into military special operations. So I started working for for them, coaching a little bit. And then uh, probably four or five years later, bought the company, changed the name, and have been coaching full, well, not full-time. I've been coaching triathletes, cyclists, runners ever since 97 on, and then went full-time coaching probably eight or nine years ago. Wow. I think you should have left it at uh, last century. I think that you, yeah. that should just be the entire intro. That sounds great right there, but everything <laughs> else is good too, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny because I see all these computer programs where people do annual training plans and all this stuff. And I just have these notebooks full of notes <laughs> for all my athletes that I carry around. And every year I just start a new notebook and I can't, I can't be bothered to figure out how to do it on training peaks or anything like that. Well, it seems to be working. So, uh, you know, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. So far anyway. <laughs> um, so I guess I, like I said, I'm tapering for Ironman Tulsa. We've got some North American Ironmans coming back and this summer looks like it's going to be fairly full on with some Ironman racing. Yeah. Yay. Which is, yeah, yeah. It's very exciting. <laughs> um, and one thing that we haven't really talked about specifically yet on this podcast is the, the ins and the outs of preparing for and executing a solid Ironman bike leg and, and kind of the implications of that. And I think, I think it's, uh, it's different than, um, you know, than the 70.3 stuff we've talked about and I guess any other part of the, the Ironman. So I really wanted to kind of get in the weeds as far as what people should be thinking about doing if they have an upcoming Ironman say, you know, 12 weeks away from now, or if they are getting ready to do a race like Ironman Tulsa, where 
maybe they're 10 days out or three days out by the time this airs and they're really thinking about how to have that perfect execution of the bike leg. So to kind of keep things in chronological order, I want to start with the training first and then kind of work through, let's say we are a little further out from an Ironman. How does that kind of build up look like for an athlete? And then, and then later on, we'll kind of get into the, the actual execution of, of the race. And, you know, there are a lot of ways where you can have the perfect training and, and really sabotage yourself in the execution. So I, I want to make sure we have enough time to, to get into that, especially for the people that might be past that training point and just getting ready to execute. So in the build up to an Ironman, do you have like any, any go-to workouts or benchmarks that you have like a little further out that kind of increase over time? Or I guess, how do you, how do you begin that process with an athlete where you say, okay, we've got whatever it is, 10, 12, 16 weeks, where are you at now? And how do we get you where we're, where you want to be? Do you, do you have like a, a, a benchmark that you like to go to or, um, yeah. How do you get that ball rolling? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, first of all, I think it depends on the athlete. So if, if you look at time crunched athletes who maybe only have eight to 12 hours a week, I think something's almost always going to be compromised, whether it's swim training, bike training, or run training. Um, but if you have athletes who are training 15, 17, 19, 23 hours a week, you know, kind of like those, uh, high level sort of professional age group athletes, then I think you can take a different approach. So if you look at someone who's only in that eight to 12 hour range, oftentimes they're going to be hard pressed to really get four and five hours consistently on the bike. They just don't have enough hours in, in the week. So that may be a situation where you do a long ride every other week, um, and maybe, you know, like early, you know, far out 16, 12, 10 weeks, maybe four hours is a really good, good benchmark for those people. If they can do four hours every other week, pretty easy, or maybe not pretty easy, but pretty, uh, pretty comfortably. I think that's, that's a really good start starting point for them. And then they can, they can dial it in as far as intensity as they get a little bit closer to the race. Um, and, and that early, you know, like I, no matter who it is, I'm a big fan of just, you can get as much climbing in as you want, because I think that's just a great way to help build that aerobic capacity. Um, but if you're, if you're one of those age groupers who can train a lot, then I think it starts to look a little bit differently because you have, you have more time available to ride longer, more often. Um, and then you can start riding three, three and a half, four, four and a half, five hours, a little bit earlier into your training cycle and hopefully developing a larger capacity for, for the race. Marilyn, what about you? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with what Brian's saying depends on the athlete. Um, I'll have a serious conversation. What's interesting is, you know, you pick the first, I pick the number of weeks saying 10 to 12 weeks out to me, that's um, getting pretty close to an Ironman. So I'll even start people's Ironman build look at like 16 weeks and even 20 weeks out 20 weeks is pretty far away but let's say for most athletes 16 weeks 12 weeks when we're getting 12 and eight weeks four weeks in you know those are really a lot of work is a lot of the preparation work has been done already to to get to that point you're getting into pretty specifics by the time you're 12 weeks out for an Ironman build um so let's let's pick a number for me it would be more like 16 weeks out on an experienced athlete 
And then, yeah, it definitely depends on how much, like you said, Brian, how much time an athlete has to dedicate to the sport. I, what I was about to say is I will have a serious conversation with some athletes to say, is it realistic to do a race as long as an Ironman if you only have eight hours or 10 hours a week to consistently train? And if they have some blocks of time within that you know, 16 to 12 weeks out where they can dedicate a week here and there to some bigger volume, and um, then then we can we can wiggle with it and we can make it all work and there is a way. However, I feel like to com- Ironman's long. You know, I remind yeah. people it's a long ways, and I think that that definitely that bike leg. You know, 112 miles. If you are someone who only has a limited amount of time to train, chances are that leg itself is going to take you a pretty long time, and so if you only have eight hours a week and that bike ride takes you six and a half, seven and a half hours, and you still have to run a marathon. Like we've, we've got some sort of endurance issues going on here that it might not be the best race for you. And I would recommend saying like, let's look at half Ironman Olympic distance. And then when you have a period of time in your life where you can dedicate a little bit more endurance, we'll look at, look at the Ironman. That's just a personal preference of mine with coaching. I'm not saying it's impossible to, to work with that. And, and there is ways, like we say, like every second week or, Maybe they've got a week here and there within the block, they can dedicate more time, but they're consistent around that eight to 10 hours, the 15 to 23 hour a week, um, athletes, you've got a lot to work with there. That's, that's good. Uh, to me, I, you know, definitely if you've got someone in that 15 hour range that says, I want to do an Ironman, I, I then will say to them, that's an appropriate matchup. And we're going to be able to get in because then you can get good work done during the week. That's around their probably life and work schedule. Um, and, and that's going to be progressive in terms of intensity within the build or different energy systems as you work through their build, but you're going to be able to consistently get, get the volume that you need on the weekend for that. You know, it's just a long ways. 112 miles is it's not, it shouldn't be taken lightly. And I think that's where the big disconnect has come in. Same. I've been coaching for a long time, been a part of the sport a long time. And there's, uh, maybe sometimes a bit of a disconnect on how how long this bike ride really is and it, you need to be fit enough to be able to do that and still be able to run a whole marathon like so so that's a, a big a big thing with me how about you jesse um yeah i guess i i agree with everything you guys said i i, uh, I think it definitely depends on the athlete and i am a pretty big believer in volume and i you know, we'll, we'll definitely try and stretch people if they only have like less than 12 hours. And I would say, well, you know, I, I would really encourage them to look at if there's any way we can squeak more hours in to get closer to that 15, 16, 17, even up to the 18 hour mark, at least a bit. Um, I don't know. I, I definitely am a big fan of long rides and I think that that really helps athletes prepare for the long day. And so if I'm, if I'm like 16 weeks out, then I, de- I definitely agree. Like four hours, we should be able to ride four hours and, and feel good and be ready to say, okay, I'm ready to like build on that and, and get up to four and a half, get up to five, get up to five and a half. And then depending on the speed of the athlete, maybe even getting up to, to six hour, a six hour ride. Um, so yeah, having, having a little, little more wiggle room there, I think is pretty important. And I, I do think that like an argument can be made for doing, some maybe shorter, harder rides, like on the trainer, like you jump on the trainer for three and a half hours and you spend whatever it is, like 
two by 90 minutes at Ironman effort or something where you can get in a ton of quality there in a shorter amount of time. But I do think there's something to be said for being outside and like having to hold yourself up on your bike and feel the wind in your face for, for a good amount of time. So I would, I definitely would want people to block out some time. And like you guys are saying, whether it's like, oh, well, I can take like four days off between now and the race and I've got 16 weeks so I can really space out some, some bigger weekends or some bigger chunks of time to make sure I can dedicate a little more time. But I think that, yeah, it needs to be a pretty big priority to be ready to, to execute like a long day and, and feel confident and comfortable with, with that bike leg. One really, one really um, important thing that I think we need to talk about when we're talking about these hours on the bike is the, the difference in speeds of athletes. So if you've got a really elite athlete and let's say, so let's take a, a top male professional, they're going to ride somewhere between, let's say on average, like around 415 for most of the Ironman courses, obviously some are going to be a little faster, some a little bit slower but their work rate and their kilojoules and, and what they're doing within that four fifteen and four and a half hours is really, really high. So if you've got an elite male and you're training them and you send them out on a lot of six and a half, six and a half, five and a half hour rides, probably their total stress and fatigue is going to be actually way too high because they're, they're really killing themselves and going far and working really hard at a work high capacity over and over again. And so in the terms of the total load in the build, it's likely that it's actually going to be too high. Whereas the slower athletes, you know, that the four hour ride, they might only cover 55, 60 miles and the work rate and the kilojoules spent because they're not actually able to work as hard or put as much effort into those rides. And so those are the ones that we have to say, okay, now it is important that we're, we're getting, at what point is there a shift on, you know, work rate within the ride and how hard they're going as well as being able to cover the distance. So if you've got, like I say, if you've got an elite male and you're sending them out on a six hour ride every weekend, you you might be at risk of them falling actually a little bit too flat or being too tired going into the race just because the amount of work that they're doing versus, and they're, cause their ride is really only, you know, I, I like to see like, okay, what's the, if they're going really hard for a six and a half hour ride, but they're like at 5,000 kilojoules at the end of the ride, that's going to take some, that's pretty steep. You know, that's, that's huge. It's going to take them a lot to recover from that. So you can't handle too many of those in your buildup before the tank's just empty by the time you go to race versus if you've got someone who's, you know, like I say, they're only maybe able to cover 60 miles um, in, or even 50 miles in four hours. Now, now we need quite a lot of those six and a half hour rides. I, yeah. I don't know what you think about that guys. Yeah, I would totally agree. You know, if you look at kilojoules expended, if you've got someone who's crushing themselves week after week with those those high amounts, it's almost it's almost hard for them to recover in time to do a lot of quality after three or four or five weeks when that that effort starts to pile up on them. And you know, for for an age grouper, that sort of one hour, one hour fifteen, one and a half hour ride is kind of like your standard bread and butter ride where. For a male pro, it's probably closer to three hours a couple times a week. And I think that sort of, you know, that kind of sweet spot, then they can overreach a little bit here and there on the weekends or in the middle of the week if they're if they're full time. And they don't have to worry about necessarily thrashing themselves and just showing up week after week and just on this negative, negative trend of fitness performance because they're so they've just gone in the hole too much and they're just can't dig out of it. All right. 
that I have a, a kilojoule question for you guys, which I'll get to in a second. But I, I think it's interesting you um you talk about uh you know, male pros riding too hard. I feel like I need to make sure I write work in my rides or I'll go out there and just, uh, just noodle around for, uh, for six hours and be like, yeah, I rode for six hours and got in 2000 kilojoules. That's good. Right. That was, that was, that was solid. Um, so I think that it definitely does depend on, on how the, you know, the athletes kind of style of, of riding on their own, um, uh, I do think some athletes need a little prodding in order to ride hard. And then other athletes are exactly the opposite where you need to like put the reins on and be like, okay, you're, you're riding really hard. Every single ride, you have to get to pull this back. Or if you're going to do that, you're just going to ride a lot less because kind of like you guys are saying, if it's one of those athletes that just like only knows one way to pedal, then, then yeah, maybe they only get to ride long every other week or something. Cause they're going to be riding hard for four four or five hours, like back to back. And, um, so you guys both just mentioned kilojoules and I know I've, I've heard Brian mention it in the past on rides. Is that something you look at when prescribing rides to athletes or something you look at in the data after, um, as far as like getting people up to like, I don't know, like Ironman energy expenditure or, uh, yeah. How do you use that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I look at it both before and after. So if I have an athlete coming to me and once they dump all their power files off through training peaks or whatever, then you can go back and sort of look at their historical, historical burn rate for half Ironman and Ironman racing. And then let's say it's 3,600 kilojoules is their typical give or take a hundred or so for an Ironman. At some point you're going to want them to do work above that. And whether that's going out and riding easy until you get to 4,000 or whether it's doing a, you know, long interval set or maybe two interval sets and within a four, four and a half hour ride. So they're whatever you want to target for them. Um, and then for training, you know, sometimes I'll just give my athletes go ride 2000 kilojoules and I don't care how you do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's, that's, that's scary. There's a lot of ways to get there. (laughs) Right. Well, and it probably wouldn't be 2000. It'd be more like around a thousand, 1500 kilojoules, uh, because 2000 starts for the average, you know, average age group male, it starts to get into closer to that two, two and a half hour range, where I think if you're looking at a thousand kilojoules, you're probably looking somewhere between hour 15, hour 45. Um, but that's not, it's not often that I, I let them off the reservation like that. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, you can also look at kilojoules as sort of like, okay, if I'm doing all these long rides and I'm burning whatever, 3000 kilojoules, 4,000 kilojoules, and I get off the bike and I can barely walk to the refrigerator. Well, then obviously that's not, that's not going to be very successful for you in an Ironman. So now you can start to look at the number of kilojoules you're doing and then track how many calories you're taking in on a ride. Since there's roughly a one for one correlation between the two, if you're getting off every bike of 3000 or more kilojoules, and you just want to sit down on the sit down and pass out and you're only taking in 500 calories. Well, now you, now you can see that mix match and you know that, okay, I need to start taking in more calories because my kilojoules are depleting me. The the energy I'm putting out is depleting me and I'm not taking enough in, in order to be able to have a successful marathon. 
Yeah. And on that point, Brian, I actually take um, some of the faster athletes and teach them about gut training in terms. Yeah. Of, so like, obviously, if you've got some of the really fast athletes that are getting a ride done in, you know, let's say four and a half hours at, and they're working at a pretty high percentage of, of work rate for that time, and they are burning up around that 4,000 you know, mark in their race and have to be able to run well off of, uh, that's a huge amount of calories that they're going to yeah. have to take in, especially if it's going to be a hot race. Well, typically you have to say, okay, well, they're not actually going to be able to get that much in without having GI distress. So you have to train that and be able to handle it and find out where that mark is so that they can run well, as well as looking at like, okay, do we do a fuel uh, fuel profile with and testing and find out, okay, do we need to build that base bigger? So they burn fat for longer within their profile and say, okay, this is the point you're going to start burning sugar. You're burning this much when you ride hard for your race. And we've got to be able to run well off of it. Still handling the, handling the dynamics of, you know, certain, there's just no doubt of the, the tactics of the, some of these races, you're going to have to go hard at certain points and respond to things to even be in the race. So taking that into account and saying like, okay, how big does our fitness well need to be able to be to handle that, handle that under stress, get enough calories in, be able to handle those calories in different conditions and still run well. And so that can all come into play. Like how much volume is this athlete going to need to be able to yeah. actually run a good marathon off of that kind of bike? Um, so that's where, that's where I'll use it a little bit more, Jesse. It's also like, I use it as monitoring, like mostly for the really, really fast people are saying, okay, you are going just a little bit too hard too often. We need to back this off a bit just so you don't come into form too quickly, but figuring those things out saying, okay, how much, how much volume do we really need to be able to race that hard? Um, and then how much work rate within your rides and in preparation to be able to ride that hard and, and be able to run well off the bike. So that's, I don't know if that, if you agree with that, or you've seen, seen that work, or if you watch that at all. Yeah, totally. I, I think, um, I, I look a little bit more at power, heart rate and duration, but I also, I, it is a nice thing to have there to, when you're kind of looking back at all the rides they've done and looking forward to what they need to do, it can be a nice metric, um, to kind of help compare everything. So I've, I've never used it to prescribe a workout, but I do think it is a good a good number to kind of have it in the background and, and kind of knowing where an athlete is at. And, and I do think that, yeah, when you have those, those fueling conversations, it, it is nice to know, like, or it is some nice concrete data to be like, Hey, listen, like, I'm not just making this up. Like, you know, 100 calories an hour is not going to do it. Don't, don't just take my word for it. Like here is some data that says you are not eating enough. So yeah, I think it can be, be handy for that. Um, so do you like to have your athletes go either over distance or over kilojoule before they do an Ironman? Uh, yes. Most of the time. I mean, and you know, these, are, these are those, it depends on the athlete questions. Um, but yeah, like I think, I think if people want to have a, the Ironman bike leg should not be, in my opinion, your hardest ride of the year. You should almost be bored on that bike leg, especially if you're an age group athlete. And it's because the harder you go and the more you override your fitness, your margin of error for a successful rate just starts to shrink rapidly. 
And I mean, the run is littered with what if questions, or if only I had done this, if only I had done that, you know, you can get to some point on the run and probably eight out of 10 people are like, oh, if only I had done this on the bike, or if only I had done that. And, you know, I think, I think it's hard. And like you, I'm a huge proponent of volume. And the, the number one way to make any hard race easier is just become more fit. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Like the, the higher your fitness is, the less steep any hill is, the less windy any headwind is, the less hot the temperature is outside because you're, you're just more fit and your margin of error is, is, is larger. And, you know, you look at some of these athletes who don't put in that, that sort of over distance training and, you know, they have to have every single thing go correctly by the time they get to T2 in order to even have a hope of having a decent marathon. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't always race like I coach and I always tend to override and, and, and try and grasp at that, at that, at that hope of maybe, maybe this will be the day this works. But, right. <laughs> but, you know, and I think that's a difference between, and I don't know how many, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but that's the difference between pro and age group racing age groupers. You can give them a power target and they can just go out and right off the bat, they can just get in their aero bars and just sit on that number, whether it's, well, let's just say 200 Watts, but male pros are idiots. Like they try to win the race in the first 40 K like, Oh, I'm going to do a 400 one and a half minute surge and blow everybody off my door and ride and run to victory. No, like you've got 15, 20 guys sitting there right behind you in your slipstream and they're trying to match you. And, you know, I sat on a panel with, uh, uh, this is probably about 10 years ago with a couple of pros who had uh, a couple of them had won Ironman Arizona in the past. And that was one of the things they said, they, they were all like, yeah, we could probably all go three to five minutes faster on our Ironman. Um, if we would just ride and just not try to kill each other and slay each other in the first 40 K. Yeah. The power data for that race is always like losing 20 lots Watts every lap. Like it's uh, yeah. and it's not just me. Cause everybody's staying with me, you know, it's uh, we right. all, we all don't start super strong or super intelligently. Um, it is good, a good reminder. I mean, a good, a really simplified way, to, like you're saying with the amateur athletes, sometimes I'll remind them when they get really excited about surging and racing and all of these things to say, like, there's nothing as slow as walking. So all day, <laughs> like if you're going to look at the race from start line to finish line, there's really, if you look at the whole day, the slowest thing you can do all day is walk. Yeah. So if you're thinking about going with that move and you're questioning whether that's a good decision for the length of the race, just remind yourself, like, is this going to look like I'm going to end up walking later on today? It's probably better to just back off just a hair because you're going to be, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, just uh, you can take a long time to walk a half marathon. So versus if you can keep running. So that those are, those are good little reminders. Yeah. I always tell my athletes when in doubt, don't. <laughs> that's, that's good. Yeah. I, uh, going back to your board comment, I had this great picture of, uh, Caleb, if you're listening, one of my athletes, Caleb, who, uh, was doing, doing the Maca with his elbow on his arrow bars, um, just kind of cruising Ironman, Arizona, <laughs> like this feels too easy, kind of smiling and waving, but you know, like, like he, uh, then it turns out he had a good run because he rode within his means and, and it, it worked out. So I, yeah, I think that's good advice. You should, you should, it should not be your hardest ride. You should have definitely, if you don't have time to go over distance or over time, then if you can go over kilojoule in some fashion, yeah. then, then yeah, making 
doing what you can to be fit enough to make that 112 miles feel as easy as possible. I will say that one thing um, to keep in mind, so if there's a difference between, you know, we talk about it depends and, you know, it depends on the athlete, those things, which are always important conversations to have when we talk about these broad paintbrushes. And one of the things, if you're a, a smaller female, you want to be careful about doing too many over distance, really slow, long rides. Um, those can wear the, the smaller ladies down quite a lot, and they don't get a lot stronger from them. They just kind of um, get slower and, and weaker from them. So you have to be a bit careful that like really, you know, the, the bigger guys are going to get stronger and stronger from those over distance rides going, going nice and easy for a long time. But um, two, I I'll often have a conversation with some of, some of the women that I coach that are, they're really small and they're a little bit older and they have some concerns about, of course, we need the endurance to cover the distance and be able to, like I talked about, we've all stressed the importance of having the endurance to be able to handle the ride and, and run well. But there's a real balance with that type of athlete specifically that too many of those actually make them weaker and slower. So you really want to monitor that closely with any, any females that just smaller females in general, and maybe smaller males as well, but I, it's not as common. I see it in the smaller females and especially the, the little bit older, smaller females. So I think that's important to keep in mind if you're listening to this and you fall into that category. I think people underestimate that, uh, relative energy deficiency syndrome, red S is really a thing, even for females and males. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, I have to get leaner. I have to get leaner. And then next thing you know, they've just dug themselves in too deep of a hole. Um, whether it's through too many rides that are too long or not eating enough, not eating properly or a combination of all the above. Right. Yeah. It's definitely a fine line. It's always better to air on the side of a couple of pounds too heavy. And, um, a couple yeah. rides too less. Mm. Uh, and I do think that there is like a distinction there between um, this is kind of jumping sideways a little bit here, but like doing an endurance ride and doing a recovery ride. And I, sometimes I, I see people slip going back to saying, well, I, you know, I went for a really long ride and, and you look at the, the heart rate power and you're like, well, you, you were in like basically your recovery zone for the entire six hours. So it's not really achieving the effect we want. And right. I think that kind of, if the athlete is one of those athletes where that's, that's like my default where I'd be like, oh yeah, I'll go ride 15 miles an hour. Yeah. I can do that for six hours. It sounds great. Right. Uh, where you might need to add a little more structure and say, okay, like this is what you want to do, but you're not really getting any faster doing this. So if you are someone who's going to ride a little bit slower, a little bit easier, maybe we need to dial up that intensity knob and back that duration to kind of get that, that similar effect. Yeah, that's a good Those point. athletes, it's important to have a, a, a floor. There's the ones that you have to give a right. ceiling. Right. Don't, <laughs> please don't go over this today. And then the other ones are like, please do not go under <laughs> this today. Right. Yes. <laughs> the ceilings and the floors. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think, so uh, as some of you may know, I, I tend to get out of Tucson in the summers and, and go live on the East coast. And I have a, one of the cities I was living at, there was a pro a defunct protein now, but there was a bunch of guys who were living in, in town that summer. And I would see these guys riding around at 17, 18 miles an hour. And, you know, you're like, do I pass them? Do I not pass them? But again, they're also riding five or 600 miles a week. And so I think that's where a lot of age groupers are like, oh, these pros ride so slow at times. I'm going to ride, uh, I'm going to ride really slow, but it, 
they're also not riding the volume that those cyclists are. So they do need to have a little bit more intensity in that. Yeah. That's always the, the tricky balance with volume and intensity overall. And then like kind of within each workout. Um, and then touching on that, that climate too, like different places that you're living, I think that does play a role in, in how much athletes can do. Like if you're in, in Tucson in the summer, I would not recommend that same six hour ride. Oh, um, so yeah, just yeah. kind of things to be mindful of. Now, are you, do you guys, um, tend to build your athletes volume? So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to say it, but I won't call it reverse periodization because it wouldn't be a true reverse periodization with any of this, because we're still always talking about in, you know, working endurance, but some people say, well, we place these like really long over distance rides, this kind of stuff, you know, in that 16, 12 weeks out, or are you in the favor of, we start with, let's start with three hours, build to four and then to five. And we got a few five hour rides and then we build those five hour rides with some work rate into them. Um, and then we bring them down back down to four and the work rate increases and you're getting, they're getting shorter and harder. So is, is it like, where are you guys at with that within your build? Are you someone who says, look, we're going to do a whole bunch of over distance rides at 12 weeks out. And then we're going to start to bring them down um, more and more. Um, talk about that a little bit. Brian looks like he's thinking, so I'll, I'll jump in here first. <laughs> um, I feel like it, yeah, you know, not to say the same thing over and over again, but it definitely depends. But like, if I had my, my dream scenario where I could give the athletes, um, as much training as, as we wanted to do, and they could recover and didn't have to go to work in the internet. Um, I really like the idea of, yeah, building that long ride, earlier on and giving them a lot of time to kind of recover and, and build off that where they say, okay, I've done a six, seven hour ride. And, and now I'm going to start adding in that intensity. And I would love to have that almost like a polarized approach further out where they're doing kind of longer, lower aerobic rides. And then we're hitting some short, super hard stuff, staying pretty far away from like target race Watts and then kind of have that switch flip where we're saying, okay, we're going to back down that duration. And then we're going to work more on like what is maybe race specific for your Ironman, but we've kind of built this, this long range first. And then we kind of morph that into where there still might be the occasional long ride scattered in there. That's, that's over distance, but we can definitely focus a little more on, okay, we've kind of given you the tools. Now we're going to get those tools ready to race. Yeah. I, I, I like that approach a lot, Jesse. I think ideally, you know, three, four months out, those would be your highest volume months. And then you would start to taper that down and start to increase the intensity. Um, the reality is though, like a lot of people just have a set number of hours to work out each week. And then you sort of have to sort of be like, okay, we're going to do maybe less intensity in the beginning. And then we're going to slowly build that up and then maybe more intensity in the end, or maybe we have one week where it's, you know, maybe two or three days where it's really intense in the next week, but not a really long ride. Maybe you cap that at three hours in the next week, maybe they're at five, five and a half hours. And early in the week, they have one day of intensity um, and go from there. It's just, I think a lot of people just end up trying to get, you know, like that really super long ride in two to three weeks before their Ironman. And, and I think the reality is they probably should have put that earlier into, into their training schedule. Totally. Yeah, I agree with that. I, one thing I will add, if you are kind of time starved and you're working on this, I I've seen some pretty good success with like double ride weekends and yeah. like everybody's obsessed with Sunday run day. But like, if that's your time where you have a three hour window, like 
double up, ride three hours, Saturday, Sunday, like, yeah, wake up early Monday or Tuesday and get that long. And like, yeah, the, the, whatever early alarm stinks, but you can run 90 minutes on a Tuesday maybe and, and maximize that weekend time. I actually use that quite a lot. The, you know, four hours on Saturday, three hours on Sunday, um, for time limited athlete works pretty well. The other thing too, is like, if you have an athlete that has just that set number of hours and like, like, that's it, this is the structure we have to work with. Um, you can, you can change, you know, further out, it might be what energy systems you're targeting within those set number of hours is completely different. And then you keep working within those hours. And as you get closer and closer to the race, you're, you're working, you know, more specific, more speed. And it's just, it's changing the training stimuli is changing as you get closer to the race to bring them more and more into form and further out it's based, you know, a little bit more type base and strength type yeah. work and that kind of thing. So if you're like, I literally don't have any flexibility to ever do anything really long, but I still really want to do this. There is ways to achieve it and periodize it so that it's still possible. So um, like you said earlier, Brian, and I, I, before we started recording is, you know, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. So if you're listening to this and thinking, oh my gosh, like I just will never have the time to do that. I should never do an Ironman. That's not the case at all. I mean, there is different ways to go about it for sure. Um, and so, you know, that can be a way to look at it too, is sit down and say, okay, I'm 16 weeks out. And these are, this is, you know, these are the hours I have to work with. What, how am I going to get the most work rate and progress the stimuli so that it's closer and closer to what I need to do on race day and perform at my best on that day. And it might even be a situation where athletes look at that 12 to six week, 12 to 16 week window. And they're like, okay, maybe instead of trying to have a little bit more balanced approach, I'm going to do four weeks where I'm going to run a ton and just sort of put my cycling on the back burner. And then after that, I'm going to do six or eight weeks where I'm only running three or four times a week. And I'm going to try to ride as many miles as I can in order to really jack that, that their bike fitness up um, and, and hopefully have a good race that way. So I've, um, I've actually had athletes that are pretty scared to, to do that. Everyone wants to kind of hold on to everything all the time. Do you have, have you used that strategy a lot or is that kind of like something you've thrown in there once in a while and, and have you had like pretty good success with it? Yeah, I've actually have done a lot of that. Usually for a lot of my athletes, the, you know, starting, you know, cause I, I sort of view Hawaii as, as the end of the training year. And then, you know, I usually give people don't want to talk to me until around Thanksgiving and then they start to like message me again. Um, so I'll often do, you know, starting around that Thanksgiving or early December, I'll often have them do six, seven weeks running where they're maybe only riding twice a week, swimming two or three or four times a week, but they're running nine, 10 times a week. Now, a lot of those runs are, are 15, 20 minute, super easy runs. Just get out the door, go run around your neighborhood. But if they're normally running 25, 30 miles a week, they might be running 50, 55 miles a week at that point. And that run fitness I have found will stay with someone through a lot of the year. Um, and then if they start to feel like it's fading off, then maybe later in the season, you can do a two week, you know, massive run block and sort of build that back up um, or three weeks, depending upon, you know, when, what their race schedule is like. So, yeah, I've, I've used that to great success for a lot of people. Oftentimes, you know, we're looking at six, seven, eight minute decreases in their run splits coming off, uh, off the bike which, you know, if you run eight minutes faster, nothing else changes. That's a whole different zip code in half Ironman racing. Totally. Yeah. Um, Marilyn, do you want to jump in and talk about your run challenge real quick while we're talking about this kind of thing or. 
Yeah, yeah. so I, I wouldn't use um I, I wouldn't use like block block training like that um in an actual Ironman build. So once you're like in that 16 to 12 weeks of your Ironman build, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that too much. I think it's pretty important to be specific and balanced uh for triathlon when you're that close to the race. But when you're in that 20 weeks plus out from the race, absolutely doing like sport specific blocks like that, if, uh, um, you know, I've seen that be really, really effective. And yeah, like in December when nobody has time for anything, it's usually cold where most people are. Um, I do like a, a 30 day, you know, the month of December run challenge and we, and everybody, you know, loves that it's fun. We actually run a little race at the end and everyone gets a big boost from that where they don't have to really worry about swimming or biking that much. And they just, you know, it's really interactive and, and it's a great way. And it, it does, it does boost everyone's performance for, for, like you say, for the rest of the year, you know, we could come out of December where a lot of other people might be, you know, lose a ton of fitness through the month of December. Instead, we, we maintain just a little bit on the bike, just enough in the water. Um, and, but get a huge bump in run fitness that then once we hit after new year's are in a pretty good position going into the year. So, so that's, that's, I do those kinds of block training just a little further out, more of an off season type project. Cool. Cool. Um, okay. I think we spend enough time on the training, unless you guys have any last minute Hail Marys you want to throw at me right now. I think we've given everybody good food yeah. for thought. That's for sure. Um, yeah, definitely. Let's, let's get into, I, I know that there's ever, there's going to be a lot to say here about executing the bike leg properly. We already kind of touched on fueling a little bit. And I think that's a, that's a huge go-to. Um, do you guys put a big emphasis on, on practicing race day fueling in your training leading up? And then how does that, how does that conversation look as you get closer to race day? Um, yeah, I think, I think first of all, it's a multi-pronged approach, right? You've got to find out what works for you because these gels are going to work or these blocks or whatever are going to work for these four athletes. And this guy over here is going to have to survive off of Snickers because that's the only thing he can put down. Right. So part of that is finding that. And then part of that is also on your longer rides, sort of keeping track of, of what you're taking in. So what are you eating? How many calories are you taking? And then what's the side effect of all that? Right. If you, if you're using brand a all the time and you get off the bike and you just want to throw up all every time, maybe you should switch to a different brand. So I think using like using the December, January, February, March timeframe, if you're racing in May, June, July, August to figure out what works for you, figure out how many calories you can take in to where you're feeling good coming off the bike, but you're not bloated. You don't feel like you want to throw up your stomach's not dis distended. Um, I think taking that block of time and figuring out what works, how it works is, is paramount. I mean, I don't, I don't think you can just you can wing it in a half Ironman. I don't think you can wing it in an Ironman. On um, the other thing I see too, is I see people like, like talk about the guy who eats the Snickers. It's like, well, yeah, you know, I stop at a gas station two hours in and I eat two Snickers and I'm good to go. And I, I always like to make sure that people have, have tried that feeling strategy, like while they're riding, you know, while their, yeah. their heart rate's a little bit higher. Cause I, I don't know about you guys, but I can eat anything at a gas station and give me five minutes. I'm good to go. But if you try and make me do that while I'm actually moving, um, I mean, Marilyn's eating me, see, seen me eat some pretty large donuts while we're stopped. If I tried to take those things down while I was riding pretty hard, that'd be uh, a little more challenging. So. Yeah. I, I think 
Oh, sorry, go to just. No, you're good. Go for it. No, I was just going to say, I think obviously it's important to figure out like what works for you, how much you're going to need uh, in particular, like, um, you know, doing things to figure out how much hydration you're going to need is pretty important. I think that's an area that people don't, don't pay attention to enough. Um, you know, you can do sweat tests, those kinds of things, but you can also just do the old school, like weigh yourself before then count how many bottles you drink during and weigh yourself as soon as you come back straight in, keep track of that for a period of time and start to get a feel for how much fluids you're losing and how much hydration you're going to need. Um, so those kinds of things definitely need to be, to be practiced and know what you're going to need, how often to eat. But the most important thing I stress for my athletes is fueling for a race. It, it is a skill in itself. You know, because if you, if you just think like, oh, this is my nutrition plan. I've tried it once or twice and I know it works for me. My gut handles it well. These products work for me, but it's a whole nother thing to, you know, be under race stress and be able to, to stay on top of it and do it just like our intervals and just like, you know, good technical riding through corners or time trial riding, all of these things, actually being able to fuel and have your gut handle it and, and be on schedule with it. It takes a lot of practice and it really takes even that much more practice, the more you need to consume and the faster you're going. So, you know, if you're burning a huge amount of calories and traveling really fast and working at a high percentage of your work rate, and you're not used to getting that amount of calories in and you go to do that race day, your stomach's probably going to, that's when you see, you know, someone buckled over on the side of the road or they end up in the porta potty or their gut just completely shuts down because they haven't trained their gut to be able to handle that. So it really does take, um, take practice. I know before I did Ironman Malaysia, way, but way, way, way back, I did a really extensive block of time of figuring out like how my stomach was going to handle the amount of fluids that I needed under heat stress. And so I did a, a huge amount of like indoor overheat type training sessions where I was actually under a lot of heat stress at a high work rate and, and how my gut was going to be able to handle and, and actually overdid it quite a bit and, and being able to train my gut to handle that amount of fluids while working that hard and being that hot. Uh, and that, that kind of stuff can make or break a, a person's race. So I think that's where I put a lot of emphasis and stress is like, yes, you need to know what products you can handle, how many calories, how many bottles you need per hour, but then you need to practice it and make sure that you can handle it under all conditions and under all work rates. And also you can handle it like, as in physically, you can grab bottles off of aid stations and you can chug them while riding and you can reach your behind the seat bottles if that's what you're using. And, and I, I think, yeah, I mean, we've all heard that the stories of like, you know, the race is going well until, and I think like, it's, it's easy to neglect that stuff early on and to, to not want to do it because it does slow you down and it takes a little bit of effort, but yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it will make or break your race, whether or not you take the time and energy to number one, do your homework. And then number two, actually take the time to drink the water and take in the calories you need to on race day. Yeah. Um, so I guess we talked a little bit about like Watts in, in training. Um, I want to talk about like the whole, like, like Watts VI, and then maybe work our way into a, a cadence conversation. Um, do you guys give target Watts? And then do you talk about like when it's okay to kind of exceed or like 
dial back from that target and, and talk about maybe like what you want that VI to look like for an Ironman? Uh, yeah, I think, right. Cause I think if someone's using power, you as a coach need to be able to look at their data and analyze it. And whether that's using uh, golden cheetah, WKO, whatever you want to use. Um, and if you're just going to tell an athlete, Hey, like just go ride, whatever. Um, and not look at any other data, then you're just setting them up for failure. Um, so yeah, I think using power, heart rate, perceived exertion, and just sort of tying that all into a package. Um, I think that's really the way to go for at, for a coach to prescribe that to their athletes so that they sort of have like, Hey, like if your power is here, but your perceived rate of exertion is way high for that power, maybe you need to back off a little bit. Or if your power is really high and then your perceived rate of exertion is really low, that's probably not going to end very well either. Right. Like, those first 20 minutes, I felt great. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and then it, I think also by, by giving them workouts where you have target power uh, in there, you sort of get the athletes accustomed to, okay, well, how do I feel at half Ironman effort? You know, how, or what if I ride above that by whatever for this duration, how does that feel? Um, and so I think, I think if athletes know that number and know how they're supposed to feel, that gives them two ways to check in on themselves and think about, okay, well, if I'm feeling good, maybe I the last whatever 15, 20 K of the bike, I can go a little bit, a little bit higher. And if everything has gone according to plan, then that probably is not going to shrink my margin of error any. So I think, yeah, I think using everything in combination with each other is, is the way to go. I mean, there's probably one time where I was probably too focused on power as a coach. Um, but that's, I think that was also when I was speaking for a power meter company and they were sending me around to talk to uh, other coaches and try camp. So. Yeah, I agree completely, completely with you there, Brian is like, it's important. It's also important to remember to put all that stuff in the real world. So I'll give athletes ranges that I know correlate within all the hundreds of workouts they've done in preparation for the race. So it's like, okay, we've got this long stretch, stretch of road. It's flat. It's going to be, we know it's smooth pavement on this course. We know, you know, what your cadence should look like. It should feel like this heart rate might be a little lower. If you have a tailwind, you know, your speed might be a little bit higher power, a little lower heart rate, a little lower, use that time to fuel. I'll say, as long as you're staying within this range and your speed is really high, let's recover there you come up on this climb, we know it's a little steeper, we know, okay, let's cap it at this because mm -hmm. past this too much time at this, this effort, you're probably blowing a few too many bullets for what you're going to need later in the day. And so, you know, work hard, go by feel, get in your rhythm, but we want to cap it on that. Um, and then there'll be certain sections, you know, where you say, let's just really target staying within here. But, you know, if you're seeing any kind of you know, heart rates climbing, watts are dropping, check in with your nutrition, how's your hydration, you know, are you working on a false flat? What's what's the wind like? There's what's the road surface like? So you really, as a coach and athlete, want to take a look at the course. You want to know that the ranges within all of their workouts and then break it down. Okay, here's our targets. Here, where here's places we need to cap. Um, here's places like you know, okay, we know this is a long, steady descent. So, you know, we're going to make use of as much speed as possible here. So I think 
you know, using all of those different markers are important. And, and there's like, you know, the no pedaling, it's like, okay, well, if your speed, if you're, if you're flying at, you know, eight, you know, 60, 70 kilometers an hour down a descent, and they're worried about, you know, those zeros within their pedaling, it's like, well, you're already going really fast. So as long as you're tucked and you're going really, really fast and you're, you know, you get your heart rate down, get as much fuel down as possible, because then when you hit the next roller, if, you know, as long as we're not drilling it for over two minutes at 400 Watts, you know, if your, your threshold is, you know, I'm using 400 based on numbers of, of a specific athlete, but it's like, if we know you're, you're, you're going to be able to handle that over and over again, based on the, on the sessions that you've done in your hard riding, like those kinds of things. You always look back at what have we done in training? What does the course look like? Where are we going to get the most speed for our work and then be able to run well off of it? So um, what, do, what do you guys think of that? No, I mean, I like how you talked about speed. I think that's um, something that can be left out of the equation. And I think that it's obviously like that's the whole goal, right? Is you want to get the bike done kind of as fast as you can within your means. And, and so worrying about when you're having the bike go fast or not is, is a good thing to, to talk about in that conversation. And as well as RP, I didn't mention that, but I, I thought that was a good, a good thing to make sure athletes have, one, have other in their thing, toolbox. one other thing with that, just with the speed thing, um, for some of the competitive obviously professionals, but competitive amateurs as well in the big crowds and the loop courses, you can give them, and Ironman Arizona is actually a really good uh, example of this. You can give, we know what we do in training and we can give them like a power target. We, it's a pretty uh, course that you can give power targets and say, okay, on this long section uphill, this long section downhill, each lap, that kind of thing. Now, where you need to also have a conversation with the athlete about is if the pack is really, if you're riding in these packs that are, you know, we're not able to, you're riding legal as you possibly can, but there's just a lot of people and you look down, your watts are lower, your heart rate's lower, but your speed's really high and you're moving along pretty well. Do you say, okay, I'm going to accelerate and blast all these bullets trying to get past all of these um, packs? Or do I just sit in here and know, okay, I'm legal. I'm, I'm moving along pretty fast and I'm going to have a great bike split here and I'm going to save that energy. So all of these data numbers, it's important to have conversations about how is this going to apply into the dynamics of this specific race and get the fastest bike split with the least amount of energy. And so it might not just be as simple as saying, oh, we're just going to follow these watts. You know, it's like, yeah. well, um, you know, there's a lot of other moving parts. Do so you have a tailwind? Do you have a huge pack or all of these things? So you know, don't be afraid as coaches to have conversations with your athletes about these things and not just like, here's your power data, follow that. It's like, okay, here's your power data as well as let's look at everything else too. I think we're going to talk a little bit about, I know we're, we're getting on the tail end of things and this might transition us into, we wanted to, because we got the opportunity to have Brian here with the, with the wind tunnel stuff, and we're going to do some fire questions at him, but this might roll us into that is real brief, quick conversation about um, gearing for different courses and looking at, at your equipment for that. Um, it's sort of something I, we could probably have a whole podcast on, but just, you know, we're talking about execution of the Ironman bike. So obviously what gears you have for Ironman France are going to look really different than the gears you're going to have for Ironman Arizona or Tulsa, or um, let's talk a, just a tiny bit about that before getting into, you know, I, and this is, 
this is just my pet peeve with the bike industry, but everybody's coming out with 11s and the number of athletes who can actually push an 11 on the back. I mean, I know I can't unless I'm going down Mount Lemon and even then it's 50, 50. Um, like I think a lot of athletes would be better served taking their 11, 28 off and putting a 12, 28 on. Cause that would give them one more gear in the fat of their, of their cassette range. And then you get that awkward point where, you know, this gear is too hard but it's two or three teeth up to the next one. And that one's too easy. And now you just spend the whole ride, just shift, 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 where if you're never going to use your 11, or if it's one of those 5% of the time gears that you're going to use, get something else and put something in there that you're going to use way more often. I think that's, that's a great, and, and, and then you can also look at the front end, like 5339 versus a 5236. I think the majority of athletes would probably be better served with a 5236 because let's just face it, they don't have the ability to push the torque that a male pro cyclist does, or, uh, even, you know, pro pro triathletes, male or female. Jesse, what gearing are you putting on your bike when you go on to your Tulsa, when you're going to Tulsa? So I, you know, I just run a 52 in the front. I am, I can spin a pretty high cadence. And if I do that, then my legs are better on the run than if I get myself caught and I've, I've run a 54, I've run a 55 and I can, I can push pretty good power with that on the bike and I can ride pretty fast, but my best runs have been when I've forced myself to keep a higher cadence and, you know, occasionally it'll bite me in the butt on a downhill, but, um, for something as long as an Ironman, if I have to go a little bit harder after that, it's, it always ends up better. It's, I can get really dragged down in, in a bigger chain ring up front. And so I, I totally agree. I think having, having more of a range and, and worrying less about those very infrequent moments when you might be spun out, heaven forbid, you stop pedaling for a second. And I think that those, those small moments, even, even for me, are not as big a deal as being able to, to work on like riding efficiently the other 98% of the bike leg. So yeah, I, I, I do have an 11 and I, I do try and use it a fair bit, but I just use it with a 52 and it works out pretty well. I think the really, really important thing you said in all of that is that, you know, the cadence range you can run well off of, right? I mean, I have athletes that everything saying like, I, you know, I'm, I need to be able to ride 60, 70 RPMs through my entire Ironman. Um, and then other athletes that are, I have to stay above 90 RPM. So it's like this figuring out what gearing and the type of course and what cadence range that you're going to get the most speed out of your bike most efficiently and, and be able to, you know, be able to run well at the end of the day. Cause again, nothing's as slow as walking all day. So you burn your legs out, either spinning too fast or pushing too big a gear and you're walking all day, then, then, you know, having the right gears on the right type of course can make a really big difference in your race. When I think the other thing people don't realize is that if you're pushing too hard of a gear, you're starting to use a lot more substrate utilization through your fast twitch fibers and your glycogen depletion rates are just going to, just going to increase that way. And you're going to get off on the run and feel like crap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it turns out I'm not like a giant guy that has a really big sprint, so I can't push a big gear and uh, I do a lot better with a higher cadence. And I mean, I see, you know, the majority of people that gravitate towards endurance sports are somewhere like that, where maybe a slightly higher cadence is better for them. 
there yeah. are athletes who, you know, you look at them and they have like tree trunks for quads. You're like, well, oh, maybe, maybe you should roll a little slower. And, you know, you, <laughs> but that's definitely a, something you have to kind of feel out. And obviously I like there, there's, you know, no one lick to, to how someone's going to ride their bike, but I'm just kind of joking around a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one other part of how an athlete rides is, is I think holding an arrow position and no matter what kind of bike you're riding, whether it's a road bike and you're going to be in the drops or it's a TT bike, I always like to make sure athletes practice that and can actually try and hold that for the majority of the race. And then if they do hold it for the majority of the race can actually run off of that position. I think those are all, you know, it's, it's much easier to produce Watts when you're sitting straight up on your road bike or straight up holding yeah. onto your elbow pad. So I think really practicing that is, is pretty important. Yeah. I think most people don't realize that the number one metric for how fast you go on the majority of triathlon courses is not your power to weight ratio, but it's your power to drag ratio or your power to CDA. Because if you're just punching a bigger hole in the, in the wind, you've got to put out more Watts to go the same speed. Or if you shrink that hole, you can put out less Watts to go the same speed or the same amount of Watts to go even faster. Which then at the end, obviously we all know means a faster run. So that's like, I try, that's the big thing I try and hit home with a lot of people is we want to go as fast as possible for the least amount of Watts yeah. in an Ironman. So you can run fast, least amount of energy spent to be able to run well. Um, so it's not necessarily like, Oh, I, you know, push the biggest Watts ever for an Ironman. It's like, well, how fast did you go for that? Yep. Yeah. And I think just kind of touching back on that, that weight conversation we had earlier, I think people get really hung up on that power to weight ratio. And unless you're doing Ironman France or something crazy hilly, like you said, like, that's not the most important thing. Like if you can, if you are weigh a little more and can push slightly higher, higher power on most Ironman courses, absolute power is going to mean faster. Yeah. Like even if you weigh more. Yep. Um, do we want to talk aerodynamics for a minute? Uh, sure. What do you, what do you guys have? <laughs> this is um, going to be all you, Brian. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll contribute a little, but you're the expert here. Thanks. All right. So I just made a, a quick list of basically all the things that I have conversations with athletes about. Um, all right. And so, yeah, I'm just going to kind of throw some, some rapid fire stuff at you. Sweet. Let's, uh, let's talk about the, the bottle up front. On top of the arrow bars? Uh, typically, a zip-tied cage between your arrow bars is faster than any contraption you can buy. And if you want to buy contraptions, zip ties are a lot less expensive than any of those big bulky contraptions you can buy up front. All right. Uh, round bottle or arrow bottle on the down tube? Uh, that or no, is, sorry, or no bottle. So that, that, that actually starts to to come down to how big the rider is, how big the frame is, um, and what bike you're on. Uh, and I'll use my old bike as a Scott plasma three premium as, as an example. And I've probably had about 10 or 12 of those in the wind tunnel, small and medium frames, a bottle on the down tube is actually faster or neutral in crosswinds, but you go up to a large frame and you put a bottle there. It's about eight to 10 Watts slower. Um, if you look at some of the, and this is older speed concepts, cause I haven't had one in the tunnel lately, but, uh, I think the smallest size is XS is an extra small. 
you can put two arrow bottles on the seat tube and down tube, and they actually fill in that triangle. And probably 60, 70% of the time, it's going to be faster. So the bigger of a rider you are, the bigger the frame, the less bottles you want on the frame. Now, on the flip side of that, though, is it better to have a bottle on the frame and ride two minutes slower and get your, your nutrition in than not have that bottle there, ride two minutes faster and only go 20 minutes slower on the run because you didn't have enough nutrition or fluids? Yeah, totally. I think being able to access nutrition kind of trumps all these questions, right? Because yeah. Uh, as Marilyn has coined, walking is really slow. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. So what about rear cages? Uh, those typically, as long as they're not set up super high, tend to be neutral. Um, so in the past, bottles used to be like the bottom of the bottle used to be equal with the seat. Like it used to be level with the, the top of the seat and your bottles stuck up in the air. And those actually aren't very smart to use because they cause a lot of extra drag as the air comes off the body. So you want that bottle to be down below the seat a bit because the air coming through that portion is dirty already anyway. So for what it's worth, people, I do run a bottle behind the seat and I am known for my clean setup on my bike. And so one, one listener question was about keeping that bottle in there. Do you have any, any tricks you personally use or to make sure you don't eject that one? Uh, I use a gorilla cage. I, I think they have two of them. There's like a, the regular gorilla and then the gorilla XT or extra strong or something like that. And that's what I put on the back there. Um, and then as soon as my front bottle is empty and if I'm not putting something else in there, I'll reach around and grab the one out of the back and put it between my arms just so I don't lose it. Cause again, walking is slow. <laughs> I also will take some electrical tape and like wrap it around the top rim of a couple of sides of the bottle cage in order to make the cage effectively smaller. Oh yeah. It's a good idea. Um, and cause I don't, I don't want to deal with like a rubber band if I'm racing. So I'll just do that. And then it is, yeah, it can get a little bit tough to like shove in and out of there, but you can kind of adjust the tape based on, um, whether or not you can get it out. And, and I've had pretty good luck with that. When I think athletes should not be reaching back there all the time as their primary bottle, that should be your secondary bottle and the primary bottle should be up front. Um, that kind of leads into another question where like, I guess I kind of, I'm under the train of thought that like holding position is pretty important. Every time you, you break the air, it takes a while for it to kind of clean up again. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but the question I guess is, what do you think about athletes that kind of ride with their head down and then pick it up and then move their head up and down like that in order to see the road versus someone who just kind of stays turtled with their eyes kind of like looking partially up. Um, that's a great question because I have tested numerous athletes in the wind tunnel where lifting their head up is only one or two Watts slower. And then, you know, and part of this is also going to be how does it, the helmet interact with you as well. Um, so I would say, you know, there's athletes who are very sensitive to lifting their heads up and it's a huge, huge time penalty. Um, and oftentimes, you can start to feel this uh, if you're out on a windy day, like keep your head down and see how that feels and lift your head up a little bit. And if, if your helmet becomes a lot noisier, then there's probably a lot more drag there. Um, cool. Okay. What about if you use a straw in that front bottle, is that going to be a big watt drag? The interesting thing is if, and this was done in the past with Cervelo bikes and a pen, at, I forgot the yaw angle, but a Cervelo down tube and a pen at yaw 
had the same amount of drag. That's interesting. Wow. Okay. Um, all right, chain ring, solid or just standard? Solid looks way cooler. It, but is it faster? <laughs> I agree it looks cooler. That wasn't the question. Uh, I've actually can't recall testing that. I have a solid one on my old bike because it looks cooler though. Well, yeah, yeah. okay. All right, cool. Um, almost done here. Uh, disc? Always. It's, it's, it's an exponential game changer. At, 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 on a windless day, you can put a box rim and a disc and they're going to be roughly the same. As soon as the wind starts to come out at an angle though, it moves, it, a disc does a couple of things. First, it moves the center of pressure of the bike backwards. So the bike becomes more stable. And then as the yaw angles increase, a disc actually, the drag on a disc reduces faster than it does on a deeper wheel. So if you have say a 60 millimeter in the back versus a disc wheel, and you're going 21 miles an hour on whatever Watts, um, let's just say 200 Watts to go 22 miles an hour with a 60 millimeter wheel might be 220 to go one mile an hour faster with the disc wheel may only be 205. So always Which is huge. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's an exponential game changer. It's kind of like doing one of those charity auctions where everybody pays 20 bucks and every prize is a minimal of 20. But with a disc wheel, it's like pulling out that $200 prize when everybody else is getting $25 <laughs> prizes. I like it. I like it. Um, all right. Just a couple, at least one more here. Uh, shoe covers or where do you stand on, I guess, triathlon shoes versus road shoes that are cleaner. Uh, well, first you need to be able to get your feet in and out of the shoes without crashing. That's, um, you know, right now testing shoes is very trendy in the wind tunnel. Almost everybody I had in there earlier this year tested at least two and maybe three pair of shoes. Um, it's all over the board. I like, and I have pretty wide four feet, so I have to find shoes that are comfortable and don't cause hot spots. And that's more important to me than the aerodynamics of the shoe. As far as shoe covers, yes, definitely consider it. And on the other hand, don't consider it because it's a definite maybe type of thing. I've seen some that, that work really well. Um, and then I've seen some that, that actually cause drag. And I had a, a pro cyclist in there on a team and their, their team issued shoe covers were very, very, very slow. And so he was conveniently forgetting to put his on before time trials. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thanks for that uh, trip down arrow lane. Yeah. Um, we had a few listener questions that we haven't kind of addressed during our talk. So I'm just going to try and pick the ones that we haven't talked about. So, uh, Marilyn, you're back in the mix on these. Well, I got to jump back in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. She's awake. She's awake. I'm awake. I'm awake. <laughs> uh, we talked a little bit about the draft, the draft zone earlier, and we got a question about where we recommend athletes ride. We have them ride as close as they can to the draft zone, um, to get as much legal draft effect as, as they can. Do we recommend they draft? Do we recommend they drive an extra? Never recommend drafting. Don't get a penalty. <laughs> That's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, sitting still for five minutes is never never a good way to go fast. Uh, I think you should be as close as possible, as legally as possible. Um, and the bigger the pack is, the bigger your drafting effect will be. And even at 20, 30 meters, 
if it's a big enough pack, you're still just going to be sitting back there tooling along, twiddling your thumbs at very low watts, going a very high rate of speed. Yeah. The one thing I, I really like to caution athletes about is like, if they don't know what happens when the profile of the course changes, like you need to be really paying attention to that. And, and that's like the according effect of if the group hits a yeah. hill, what's going to happen to you. So I think that the closer you ride to the edge of that legal limit, which, I mean, yeah, you want to, to maximize speed, but you need to be really focused on what's going on ahead of you so that you can react appropriately. Because if you slide into that draft zone, you have to pass. And if everyone yep. is spaced legally, then you have that's to pass a big ask. everyone. So I, I just, so I say like, yeah, you, that's what you want to do. But if you're mentally starting to lose it, then slip back a foot, slip yeah. back a foot and have, give yourself a little bit extra cushion just in case you're like not paying enough attention. Cause yeah, the lat, like I think accelerating is, is, is what is going to kill your run. And so you want to try and avoid that at all costs. But yeah, I think if you can ride as close as you can, just be ready for what might happen. Yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. I mean, if you've got to pass 30, like you look at Hawaii, right? If you've got to pass 30 people all moving pretty fast, that's a huge amount of energy. That's, that's in the heat. That's, that can, that can, if you have to do that 10 times over in a race that, that can have a pretty big impact on your run for sure. But yeah, I mean, the packs sometimes are unavoidable. So if you can use them to your advantage, you know, legally for sure. Totally. Um, Next question is, uh, does a, does a good paint job help you go fast? And I think we all say, of course, of course that helps. If it looks cooler, <laughs> look fast to go fast. Um, so do you change your position between a half Ironman and a full? And I know I never have, and I, I don't know anyone that ever has, but I, I found that an interesting question to know if like, if that's anything you'd seen, maybe people in the tunnel or any of the athletes you coach that get pretty low, you know, that's. So normally when we have people in the tunnel, we try to give them a lot of different solutions. And there's oftentimes when coming up half a centimeter to a centimeter, it's only a watt slower and, or maybe it's only two watts slower. So then for shorter races, you can lower your front end down a little bit, but for longer races, sometimes that, that comfort overrides that, that two watt disadvantage. And I mean, a lot of times, especially on the pointy end, I think athletes tend to ride you often see athletes riding too low and they can come up a centimeter and there's no, it's no worse. So if you're going to be a little bit more comfortable and, or it makes digestion easier, why not? But on the whole, I don't make it a, uh, a point to change my position from race to race. Cool. Um, so I guess, yeah, last, last question that is kind of different than the arrow questions here, but, mm -hmm. um, do you cut back on lifting before big workouts and before racing. Yes. <laughs> so I, um, I guess twofold here. I think that if it's a big workout in training, then I might kind of correlate that with a down week in lifting or try and space that out an extra day. But if it's just part of the progression, I might say, well, like lifting is a, a key. So I'm, I'm going to want that to, uh, to stay going through, um, and, and maybe that workout suffers a little bit, but they get their consistency in lifting, but I might try and move it back a couple of days around to make that happen. Um, and then with, with racing though, yeah, with Marilyn's initial response, I think, yes, I, I tend to keep that 
stay in touch with it. Like maybe they'll still do the lift warm up where they get some body weight squats and lunges or whatever to, to keep that range of motion. But like, am I like, Oh yeah, I want you to throw some plates on two days out. Let's, <laughs> let's see what you can do here. Yeah. I, I you know, you want to keep, you know, you, you want them to taper. So it's all about max lifting two days before a race. <laughs> no, I think, I think, you know, I think athletes need when they're looking at lifting, they need to, to make sure they're putting it where it doesn't compromise a lot of those key sessions, right? Like you don't want to do super heavy legs in the morning and then go do a track workout in the afternoon. Cause you need to get that, that run velocity up there. But yeah, I think tapering off and being smart about where you place that is, is, is a good idea. You know, what's really interesting about that. This is like a side conversation. Obviously I recommend tapering the lifting down. I think it should be done the primary strength training should be done in your off season. And then you go, we can periodize your, if you're an endurance athlete, you're periodizing the strength training to work within the blocks of, of training and the, the big bulk strength training should be done in way far out from your race. But now just for sake of conversation, when I was lifting and I decided to do Ironman Texas as an amateur, and I had spent like five years as a, a strength athlete, I kept lifting up to, I had lifted pretty heavy the Wednesday before the race. And, but it didn't have, um, because like, that's sort of like a, a different case study, you know, like I had been, I had been a strength athlete for a number of years and I just kept a bait, what I considered a base level of strength as I went through my Ironman training and kept it pretty consistent. And so I look back and I did five sets of five of 155 squats the Wednesday before Ironman Texas. And it had no problem at all. Now in saying that my max at that time was like 235. So, and I'd been strength training as a sport for five years. If I tried to just do body weight squats now, like I've been out of the strength world for a while and just back as an endurance athlete, I do like a squat with the bar and I'm crippled the next day and <laughs> circles and can't even like do, I can't even pedal my way out of a paper bag and I'm crying. Like I would never, never do that. So there is like, you know, there is something to be said, just making, and then the reason I tell this funny story is it, it, it always goes back to that same, it depends, you know, yeah. it really depends on the athlete and what their background is and, and those kinds of things. So those are, I think we could have a whole conversation just on that topic. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think even this, we've been talking for kind of a while and I think there's a lot more we could say, but I, um, I'm going to try and cut you guys off soon because we've been, we've been, like I said, talking for a while and I need a snack. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys for joining me today. It was a lot of fun. Um, Brian, where can people reach you if they want to reach out? Uh, Accelerate3 at Gmail. And then all the social stuff is at Accelerate3. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you again for spending some time with us. Yeah, that Marilyn. was really fun. Thanks, for, thanks yeah. for joining us today, Brian. Marilyn, Jesse, thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed this. Awesome. All right. Talk to you guys later. All right. Talk sure. to you later.